Thessalonians. We're starting to get towards the end of the New Testament. And I have enjoyed doing a Bible survey here over the Old Testament books and the New Testament books. And I hope that it has been a help to you, giving you some background into them as to who they were written to, why they were written. That's often a very helpful thing as we read what is written to them to understand why it was written. What problems were they trying to deal with? What, what was tr- the Apostle Paul in this case uh, was the author of this letter? What, what were the things that he was trying to address? And uh, knowing some of these things, knowing some of the uh, history, the times that were going on, <coughs> excuse me, uh, helps us to better understand a lot of the truths uh, that are in this. Uh, it also helps us, I think, to some degree to see uh, Christ uh, pictured more vividly uh, in his work, in the, uh, especially in this uh, portion of Scripture as we go through these Pauline epistles. Uh, we're seeing more and more of his work in the church. Uh, the church is young at this point, and a lot of instructions going on. A lot of things are being taught to the church and how they should behave, how they should be uh, conducting themselves. And uh, God gives a lot of instruction through Paul's uh, epistles. The uh, church at Thessalonica uh, was... Um, the, the, during Paul's second missionary journey was established by the Apostle Paul. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, it was the capital of Macedonia at the time. They had, it was a large seaport city uh, right on the coast. And they had about 200,000 people, as best we can tell, at the time that Paul was there. There is some indication, some people believe, that Paul was only there for about three months. And the reason for that is in Acts chapter number 17... Uh, Luke writes that he was in the synagogues teaching and preaching for three Sabbaths. Uh, But it doesn't necessarily mean that that's how long he was in the city of Thessalonica. More than likely, he was there for several months. And the reason for that is this. uh, There's a couple of things that I think are important to note about that. Thessalonica uh, was a uh, pagan city made up of a lot of Gentiles, but there was a large Jewish population there. They had their own synagogue. Uh, built at the time that Paul got there. So there was a strong Jewish influence. And um, a number of the Jews in Thessalonica, when Paul first got there, did come to trust Christ as their Savior. But the majority of the Jews did not. And so even though there was a good number of them that did, uh, most of the people that made up the church there in the city of Thessalonica were Gentiles. And they were pagan Gentiles at that. They had not been instructed in the Mosaic Law as far as uh, morals, uh, God's moral laws, and so Paul um, is concerned about him. Uh, the Jews that were uh, contrary to Paul, that did not uh, accept the preaching of the gospel, um, tried to tried to uh, capture him. They, they were going to uh, condemn him in a, in a court. They were going to try to have him uh, put in prison or, or punished for it. And when they went to go find him, he and Silas couldn't be found. And so there's a fellow by the name of Jason that was kind of their landlord while they were there, and they captured Jason, Jason and basically told him, said, look, we, you know, we want to make sure Paul and Silas don't uh, preach anymore here, and uh, we need to send them on out. And so uh, they left, uh, Paul and Silas left, and they went to Berea. The Jews in Thessalonica hated them so much and despised the message so much that after a period of time, they traveled to Berea, 
and created problems for Paul and Silas there to the point where, once again, they had to flee. And from there they went to Athens. Because Paul was only there for uh, several months and he's, he's seeing a lot of Gentile converts, um, he does his best while he's there to teach them and ground them in doctrine. And so when he has to leave, he's very concerned uh, for them because he's uh, had personal experience in other churches that he has established how quickly false teachers would come in or uh, some of the Judaizers of the day would come in and they would corrupt the gospel message and they would try to legalize, uh, be a legalistic uh, type of a teaching or a false teaching. And so Paul was very, very concerned about them. And so he sends Timothy uh, to Thessalonica. And Timothy goes there, and he brings back a report to Paul uh, of the steadfastness and the faithfulness of the church at Thessalonica. And what a blessing it is to Paul's heart. And so this letter is written uh, to the church at Thessalonica for a couple of reasons. First of all, to commend them and to say he was thankful for their steadfastness to exhort them to continue to grow in the faith and to bring some comfort to them in the fact that there had been some of them that had uh, died in the faith and there was some confusion about uh, how that all fit together in God's plan of things. And so Paul deals with these three areas to the church in this particular letter, uh, a commendation, something to encourage them to, to remain steadfast, an exhortation, <coughs> excuse me, to continue to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and also to give them some comfort about those that had died in the Lord. Pardon me, I got choked up here. I'm going to have to get some water here just a moment. We'll try to, try to get that cleared up here. <clears throat> the book can be divided basically into two halves. And uh, in chapters 1 through 3, uh, he kind of does his... Uh, his normal greeting in chapter number 1. And uh, then uh, as he gets into chapter number 2, uh, he begins to defend his ministry that he had while he was there with them. And the reason he does this is because uh, he did not want those that were his enemies there in Thessalonica to come into the church and to disparage his name to the folks that are there and to get them to turn from the things that he had taught them. Uh, and to follow after their, their teaching. And so he takes chapter 2, almost all of chapter 2, is Paul defending uh, his ministry, that it was given to him of the Lord, that he did it in their uh, interest and, and with, without selfish motives. He characterizes uh, the folks there in Thessalonica as uh, people that are uh, solid in their hope uh, of salvation and solid in their faith and uh, advancing and growing in their love, not only one for another, but also their love for the Lord. And again, it's very important to note this. <clears throat> when we speak of hope in the, New in the Bible, it is not uh, used in the sense of wishful thinking. Uh, I was talking to a lady this week and had the opportunity to share the gospel with her, and uh, she was talking about her parents. And, uh, how that, uh, and she made the comment, she said, I hope they're in heaven. And then she said, I'm sure they are. And I thought, boy, how, how sad it is that when people talk about, uh, I hope that I'm going to make it to heaven, or I hope that I'm saved, 
They mean that by wishful thinking, that it's their, their wish, their desire. But when we talk about it as Christians, when we talk about it from the things of the Bible perspective, the hope that we have is not wishful thinking. The hope that we have is a confidence of hope. Uh, confidence based on the fact that uh, He is faithful who promised these things. And while they have not happened yet, we look forward with hope to the fact that they will happen and with confidence and with great peace because we know that they're going to happen. I shared a few weeks ago the illustration of my mom and her car. And uh, if you weren't here, I'll share it with you real quick again because I think it so vividly shows the idea of hope in Scripture. But my mom uh, lost her car. Uh, it, it died on her finally. She had a 20-year-old car. And my dad bought it for her 17 years ago before he passed away and was hoping it would be a car that would last her the rest of her life. But she's still driving. And it died on her. The mechanic that we have down there is a good friend of ours. And he finally called me up one day. He said, Greg, it's, he said, even if I can fix it, it's, it's a Band-Aid at best. This car, it, it's just we've pieced it together as long as we can. It's done. And uh, my mom got nervous, and she didn't have any money. She didn't have the means to, to, to get another car. She's still working. She still gets around. And, and so she, she started fretting. And, and as much faith as I've seen her have over the years that God will provide, this one, for some reason, just threw her for a loop. And she could not get over it. And, I mean, she just was stressed and crying. She called me up weeping. I mean, more than once she called me during that uh, week or so. I told her, I said, Mom, I'll come down. And I'll help you look for a car. We'll, we'll, we'll do something. The Lord will provide. And what she didn't know was uh, the Lord had provided a car up here. And uh, I was able to secure that car and, and didn't cost her a dime. Didn't, didn't, wasn't going to cost her anything for it. It's a nice car. And I told her, I, I said, Mom, the Lord will provide. She called me one Thursday night. And, I mean, she was just, she said, Greg, I haven't slept in two nights. And she said, I'm just, I'm worried. And she's crying and sobbing on the end of the phone. She said, it's no use in you even coming down here. She said, because I can't buy one. I don't have money. Don't even come down. No sense wasting your time and your money. I don't know what I'm going to do. And just, I mean, just destroyed. And, of course, I'm, I'm calm because I already know I've got the car for her. And I'm trying to surprise her with it. And uh, I hung up the phone. I said, Mom, don't worry about it. The Lord will provide. He's always provided. He'll continue to provide. And she said, I know, I know that in my head, but it's just I don't see any way. And any of you ever been there before where you trust God, but you don't see any way God can do it because it doesn't make sense to us, you know. And that's where she was at. And uh, so I hung up the phone with her. My sisters, I guess, had gotten on the phone after that with her, both of them. And it was about 15, 20 minutes later, I started getting texts and phone calls from them saying, Greg, you really need to call her and tell her. Because she's, she's going to end up with a heart attack or a stroke, worrying, stressing over this thing. And she's not sleeping. So I called her back, and she's crying still. And I said, Mom, I said, you need to quit crying. You need to just don't worry about it. She said, well, Greg, that's easy for you to say. And I said, well, Mom, I already got you a car. And it got dead quiet, you know, for a minute. And then she said, how many miles are on it? Yeah, that's what she wanted to know first. But, you know, instantly her... Her attitude changed. I didn't even think about that uh, as an illustration until later on, about a week and a half or so after I got back from Florida, I was reading some things and teaching on some things, and we came across this idea of hope in, in Titus chapter number 2, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God. And, 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 and I was dealing with that subject, and I thought, you know, I need to explain hope because a lot of times we think that's a wishful thinking. 
that we have hope for salvation. It's not wishful thinking. We have confidence in that. It gives us hope. We're not discouraged. We're not despair. We're not in despair because we understand our estate that we were in. Now, we were, before we got saved, in despair. When we understood what our sin was, and we understood the consequences of that sin, and we understood that we couldn't save ourselves, there was a sense of despair until we knew that Christ could save us from His grace. And uh, so I told her, I said, I've already got a car for you. And I said, I can't bring it down. I wanted to get it down right away, but I said, I've got some things up here that I've got some meetings and stuff I can't get away from. <coughs> and it's going to be four or five days where I can get it down there to you. And she said, that's fine. And she said, thanks so much. And you know, for the next three or four nights, however many nights it was, she slept like a baby. She didn't. She wasn't awake, worrying, fretting, stressing, worried about things because she had hope. Now, she hadn't received it yet but she had a promise from somebody that she trusted. And when we talk about hope in Scripture, we haven't received it yet. Oh, we have the assurance of our salvation in this side of heaven, but until we get to heaven, we haven't received the benefits of it. But we have the promise of the One that we can trust. And so we have hope in Him. Not wishful thinking, but a confidence in His promise and His Word. And so this is what Paul is trying to uh, give some some uh, compliments to the church, if you will, kind of pat them on the back and say, I'm proud of you, I'm thankful for this, that your hope in salvation has grown, it's been faithful, it's been steadfast. And this is the, the state that Paul finds the church in Thessalonica in at this time. And so these first three chapters, first chapter he deals with his greeting, second chapter he defends uh, his ministry, and uh, then uh, the third chapter tells about uh, uh, Timothy bringing a good report back to him. And his exhortation to him, he begins exhorting them to continue in that growth. Don't, don't plateau. Don't just grow stagnant. And by the way, that's a good charge for you and I today, isn't it? Uh, one, of the, one of the most um, besetting things that happens to most people is we get to a place where we are content where we're at in our Christian growth. And we don't, we don't pursue it like we used to. We don't strive to become closer to the Lord, to become more like the Word teaches us where to be. And we just kind of put it on cruise control, if you will, spiritually. And we are prone to do that. And Paul's, Paul's charging them. He's exhorting them. He's saying, in chapter 3, he's saying, listen, you need to continue in these things. You need to grow in these things. And we'll look at some of these in just a little bit. The second half of the book is uh, from about the middle of chapter 3 and and on to the end of chapter 5. Paul is now giving some instructions to the Thessalonians. And so he starts off in chapter 3 encouraging them to grow in the Christian life. And then he takes an opportunity um, uh, as we get to the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4. He takes the opportunity to remind them of some previous things he had taught them. Again, remember, he was only there a short while. He wasn't there as long as he was at other churches. I mean, Ephesus, he was there for a few years, um, uh, or quite a a while. Uh, The churches of Galatia, he spent a lot of time in. Um, uh, From from time to time, he would go to different ones, and uh, were in several of those. And so it's very, very important that... um, that we understand how short of a time he had to uh, teach these folks in doctrine. 
uh, to help them uh, with being stabilized in their faith. And so he was reminding them in chapter 4 especially of some things that he had previously taught them, uh, primarily in two areas. Uh, he was teaching them uh, regarding moral purity, and the, because again of the uh, lack of teaching they had had in the Mosaic Law uh, regarding things of immorality. Uh, keep in mind, this, these people were from a pagan city, and a lot of this stuff was acceptable in society. And so he, he reminds them of that, he exhorts them in that to continue to grow in these areas and to remain steadfast in them. The second thing that he deals with them on after he deals with their uh, moral purities, he deals with uh, how they conduct themselves socially in the, in the dark city that they were in. I mean, this is a pagan city. Uh, it would be a lot like maybe the world that we live in today. The society was, was certainly uh, not uh, pro-Christ or pro, pro-Christian. And it was a very dark city, a very pagan city. And so he, he reminds them of some things about how they should live as a way of testimony. Uh, and he talks about dealing with one another with integrity and to uh, lead a quiet and a peaceable life and to be a good testimony in the society that they live in. And so he takes uh, a portion to exhort them in these areas. Uh, he also goes on and tells them they need to be rooted in God's Word, that they're to resist the constant pressures of a pagan society. Um, he teaches them to further uh, their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, their walk with Him. Uh, and then there was some concern that they had, and they didn't have an understanding of end-time events. And so as we get to chapter 4, if you'll take a moment, look with me in uh, verse number... Um, Let's go to verse number 13 for a moment. And there's some criticism that back in the early 1900s, for the most part all through history from the Apostles' time, uh, this letter to the Thessalonians, everybody knew was from the Apostle Paul. He had written it. Back in the early 1900s, some people came out and said, we're not so sure because they said from Paul's other epistles that he wrote, he dealt a lot more with doctrine than he does in this book. But yet there's a couple problems with that. One is the church was already solid pretty much in their doctrine. There wasn't a lot of need to bring a lot of correction to them. So he doesn't deal with a lot of doctrinal things in that area by way of correction. But the other thing is they don't, they don't understand that this particular passage of Scripture is really kind of a springboard and a foundational stone for the uh, end-time doctrine that is taught in the New Testament. And he says in verse 13, "...but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren." Concerning them which are asleep. So these people were concerned about, well, what happens to these people that died in the Lord? Um, are they just gone? You know, they were expecting the rapture to happen. You've got to remember, even in the times of the apostles, they thought that the coming of the Lord in the rapture was going to be very soon. They thought it would be in their lifetime. And then they were concerned, well, what about this loved one that died? How does that affect them? They didn't know those things. So he's addressing that. He says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. Concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. There's that hope again. And uh, notice here that Paul does not tell them not to sorrow. He tells them not to sorrow as others which have no hope. Sorrowing is something that God gives to us. It's one of the emotions that He allows us to have, and it helps us to cope and to deal with things. And so it's okay to sorrow. I was sharing with the family yesterday. I said, and I'm sorry, on Friday when I met with them, 
I said, you know, you need to understand that the funeral service is, is not for the one who's gone. The funeral service is for the family. It's a way for us to sorrow. It's a way for us to gain closure. And I says, find the sorrow, but if we know that she was saved, uh, then we shouldn't sorrow as others which have no hope. Uh, because we understand that if we're saved, there's going to be, uh, it's not the, the end of everything. We're going to have eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see each other again. And so he tells them uh, that they sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. And this is how we know that even in Paul's day they were expecting it then. Because he referred to it as we. We that are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. In other words, we're not going to hold them back. We're not going to go before they do. They're going to go first. Um, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so this is a description of what we believe to be the very next thing to happen in, in prophecy. And that is the rapture of those that are saved. The Lord Himself is going to come back. He's going to not set His foot on the earth at that time. He's going to come back, the Bible says, in the, in the clouds. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. So we're going to be called up. That's where we get the word rapture from. Uh, the word rapture is not found in our Scriptures, but it is the word we use to describe that event because it's a calling away. It's a calling up. And uh, so the, He's going to come back. He's going to come back in the sky. There's a few things we're going to see about that. And Lord willing, next hour we'll be preaching a little bit on this. I'm not going to go into a lot of great detail on it. But he's sharing these things. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 18, because this is the whole point of what he's teaching. He says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The folks there at Thessalonica, they were uh, in despair. They were, they were uh, frustrated. They didn't understand what was going to happen uh, with those loved ones that had died in the Lord. And so Paul sets them at ease. He talks to them about the resurrection that will take place during the rapture. (coughs) And he tells them to comfort one another uh, with these words. And so he uses the resurrection of the saints um, as a way of comfort. And by the way, it ought to be of great comfort to you and I as well. Then he begins to exhort them in chapter number 5 that with the idea of the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, uh, is referred to now, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, Lord willing, next hour, but understand that the phrase, the day of the Lord, uh, is used two different ways in our Bible. Uh, one of them is in a very specific way. And oftentimes, when it's referring to the phrase, the day of the Lord, is speaking specifically of the second coming of the Lord, when He will come at the end of the tribulation period or the end, and set up His millennial kingdom. Uh, is not referring to the rapture, which happens before the tribulation period. Uh, We call that the rapture. We call his return at the end of it the second coming. Uh, What we will find uh, is um, uh, this this day of the Lord being used occasionally, and and this is one of those instances, in a more generic sense, not as specific, and it refers to the entirety of the end-time events. The reason we know that and how you know the difference is the context. You have to read the verses around it and figure out which way it is speaking of to know which one is specifically being spoken of here. 
So there's a couple of clues that are given to us in chapter 5 that help us to realize that he's speaking here of the entirety of the end-time events that will begin with what he just described, which was the rapture at the end of chapter number 4. He says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write uh, unto you. Chapter 5, verse 1. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh, now notice this, as a thief in the night. Uh, it's going to come suddenly. They're not going to know when it's coming. Now, that, that holds true right now for both the rapture and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because none of us know when either of those events will happen. However, once the rapture happens, a timer is started and people will know exactly the day that the second coming will happen. And so for this to consistently be true, even through the tribulation period, uh, we would have to say then that if he's, he's referring here to something, an event that's going to come as a thief in the night, when they shall save peace and safety, and the sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, um, then, then it, more than likely it's dealing with the fact that he's looking at what he dealt with in chapter 4, and what he's getting ready to talk about here in chapter 5, which is the tribulation period and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's looking at that entirety as the day of the Lord. He's using that terminology for that entire period of time. And so he says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh. In other words, it's going to start uh, with an event that is a surprise. It's not something that people will know about. It will come as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child. And notice this, it says, And they shall not escape. Uh, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Now, uh, I do want to make a couple of, uh, of observations here. Uh, there will be, according to the book of Revelation, there will be uh, a number, in fact, a great multitude of people who will come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. And some people would say, well, I don't want to get saved now. Uh, if that happens, then I'll just wait and get saved in the tribulation period. The problem that I don't think that they understand is this, that right now you and I are living in a time where God's wrath on sin does take place, but we're living in a time where it takes place tempered by His mercy. And there are often times that God stays or is more long-suffering and delays the judgment of the sin uh, because it is, it is uh, tempered by His mercy. But we studied Revelation last year, and we came into the portion of Scripture in the, Revelations that, or in the Revelation that talks about uh, that He will judge and His wrath will be poured out, and the phrase is used, without mixture. In other words, there's going to come a time in that tribulation period where his fullness, the fullness of His wrath on sin will be poured out on men, and it will not be tempered with His mercy. Uh, I was talking to some folks the other day, and it's amazing, in my lifetime, uh, we seem to see more and more natural disasters. And it seems to be taboo in our, in our society to say God's judging sin in our world, but the truth of the matter is more and more sin is becoming rampant, and more and more we're seeing these things that come upon this earth, and there's no doubt that God is bringing some of His wrath 
on the sin that we have in this world. But He has certainly tempered it with His mercy, hasn't He? We have not experienced a Sodom and Gomorrah yet, have we? We have not experienced a Tyre and Sidon yet. We've not, we've not experienced an Ananias and Sapphira event yet. There are, there are times where God's wrath is certainly visible and seen this side of heaven. But it is still tempered with His mercy. There's going to come a day where it's not. Because of that, we would want no one, no one, even if they were to get saved in the early days of the tribulation period, we would not want any of our folks that we love and care about to go through that. Because there are still going to be plagues that they're going to have to endure. There are still going to be hardships that are beyond anything we can ever imagine. We went through, <laughs> we went through some real pain and suffering the other day. We were without electricity for 30-some hours, I think it was. And we, boy, you'd have thought we were dying, you know. Folks, we have no idea. And oftentimes when somebody realizes, well, hey, I can just wait till the tribulation and then I can get saved when I realize it's getting close. We don't have that guarantee, for one thing. Our life may be required of us before then. But secondly, if, if we're not concerned about others that are unsaved because we think, well, they can just get saved in the tribulation period, we need to understand what they're going to have to endure and go through. We would not want that to happen to them. Very important that we understand that. And so he exhorts them uh, about these, these, this day of the Lord, these end-time events. And he gives them a charge. He makes three requests as he gets to the end of the book. He closes the book with three requests. If you'll take a moment to look with me there. Chapter number 5 and verse number 25. First of all, he says, Brethren, pray for us. By the way, uh, I think that's a good thing for every believer to do. <laughs> pray for one another. I don't know how many times uh, I've been in the a battle or some something that was weighing heavy upon me, and someone would call or someone would send a text or someone would send a card and would say, Brother Greg, I'm praying for you. I got a text this morning, about 5.30 this morning, from a pastor in Maine. He said, Brother Greg, I just want to let you know I'm praying for you. Can I tell you, that, that means the world to me. To know that there's another person out there that's praying. I know. I don't know how many of you have told me, Pastor. I pray for you every day, every day, folks. That means more than you can imagine. And so Paul requests. He says, "Brethren, pray for us. Pray for us." Secondly, I want you to notice in verse number twenty-six. He says, "Greet one another with a holy kiss." Now, again, these these teenagers that take this verse in the churches and say, "Well, that tells me I should go and kiss this girl over here." No, that's not the kind of kiss he's talking about. It was a greeting of the day. It was a way to show their love for one another. And we don't practice that today. We shake hands today. But the truth is, one of the exhortations that Paul had given them was that they would grow in love. Not only one for another, but also with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was charging them and saying, listen, I want you to continue in this. I want you to pray for us. I want you to greet the brethren with the Holy Kiss. And then he tells them in verse number 27... He says, I want, I want to charge you that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. I want everybody to hear this. Everybody needs to know it. And by the way, that would be a good charge for you and I to take, wouldn't it? To take this book, not just First Thessalonians, but the entirety of the Bible. And let everybody that we can know it. Read it to them. Quote it to them. 
talk about it all the time. I love, I love sometimes getting together with some of our folks here, or even in social settings outside of church, how often the conversation turns to things of the Bible. I, I love when somebody calls me or texts me and says, Pastor, do you have a minute for a question? I was reading Scripture and I, 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 I want to get your thoughts on this. I love that. Because it's something we all ought to be involved in. And so he charges them to pray and to uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. In other words, have love one for another. Keep that fellowship sweet. And then to make sure that this epistle was read among the brethren. Um, of course, the author is Paul. As I said earlier, it was unchallenged up until about 100 years ago. And then there were a few knuckleheads out there that said, we don't know if it was or not, but it, it was Paul. Uh, it was the human author of it. Um, I've already given you some things about the city itself. The Christ of Thessalonians, uh, Christ is pictured in several ways. He's pictured as uh, the believer's hope of salvation. Uh, and there are several things that Paul deals with. Uh, and I want us to look at them. We've got about four minutes. We can take a minute to look at all of these if you'd like. Uh, let's go to chapter 1. And uh, he goes through uh, five different things here that that Christ is is noted for in, in these Scriptures. Look with me in chapter 1, verse number 10. Paul writes, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And so Christ is pictured here as the one that will deliver us from the wrath to come. It is by Him and Him alone that we escape the penalty for our sin. Not always the consequences of our sin, but certainly the penalty of it. Uh, also, look with me in uh, chapter one and verse, uh, chapter two and verse number nineteen. Chapter two and verse number nineteen. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of the Lord Jesus at His coming? And we find that Christ is our reward. <coughs> Christ is our reward. He is our hope, our joy, and our crown of rejoicing. All right, in chapter 3 and verse number 13. Chapter 3 and verse number 13, the Bible says, To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all of his saints. He is the one that will perfect us. He's the one that does the work in us. He's working on us each and every day. When I was a kid, there was a little song we used to sing, He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Uh, the truth is, as an adult, we ought to sing that song and know it. Because the truth is, until we get to heaven, He'll continue to be working on us to perfect us, to make us more like Him, to better equip us, to mature us in the, in the faith. And He is the one that does that work. He's the one that began the work in us. He's the one that will continue to perform it until we reach uh, that heavenly shore one of these days soon. Chapter 4, verse number 13, uh, we've already read. Uh, he is the one that uh, provides the resurrection of the saints. Christ is pictured as the source, the one that is the one to bring about the resurrection of the saints. And then uh, chapter 5 and verse number 23. Chapter 5 and verse number 23. The Bible says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, fifthly, He is the one that sanctifies us. He's the one that does that sanctifying work. 
We just finished last Wednesday night our study on the topic of repentance, and we finished it with kind of the other side of that coin, uh, now that we are saved. Uh, the sanctifying work then begins once the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us and lives inside of us. <coughs> and it is a work that He does inside of us. The Bible says in the book of Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit, it's not our fruit, it's His fruit. And the more we yield ourselves to His leading in our lives, the more He is able to produce fruit in us. If you say, well, Pastor, I just don't seem to have a whole lot of fruit in my life then let's yield ourselves more to the Holy Spirit because He's the one that produces it in us. And He does that sanctifying work. The keys to Thessalonians, uh, the subject matter is uh, to live holy in the light of Christ's return. And so Paul exhorts them and charges them that, look, because Christ is coming, His, his return is imminent, it is uncertain, no man knows the day or the hour, is going to come as a thief in the night, then we ought to live a particular way. And he charges them to live holy in light of God's return. And by the way, that ought to be one of, our, one of the big motivating factors in our lives, to live holy. We don't know when the Lord's going to come back. And the truth is, there's a lot of times we go to bed at night having not given one thought that day to the fact that the Lord might come back right now. I wonder how much it would change our lives, how we go about living them, if we could live with that thought in mind. And so... Uh, Holiness in the light of God's return. Um, key verses are chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Not enough to just get to a certain place and maintain it. He tells them in verse number 12 that they increase and abound in their growth. And that's a good charge for you and I to listen to. Chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, once again dealing with the end time events. In light of God's return, we should be increasing and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The key chapter is chapter number 3. <coughs> And I hope that will help you uh, understand a little bit more of the book of First Thessalonians, why Paul wrote it to them, uh, a little bit about the character of the church there. Uh, it's a very good, solid church. They, um, they were babes in Christ, so to speak. They were Gentiles who did not know a lot of things when they got saved, and Paul was doing his best to instruct them in doctrine. And, um, but a great church, a solid church there, capital of Macedonia. And... Uh, was a shining light in a very dark world during that time. And uh, next week we'll be into Second Thessalonians, and that'll be uh, an interesting study too, so don't miss that one. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful and grateful for Your Word. How it